pray with me as we begin? Uh, Lord, we thank you for this uh, <clears throat> wonderful place that you've provided for us to come and to gather, uh, just to come and hear from your word and to sing praises and just to, to stop and to focus on you together as a body. We pray that you would just lead and guide us in this time. Uh, as we often do when we open your word, we just confess that we need you here leading and guiding us in your spirit that you are the teacher, you are the one that will show us, you are the one that will apply this to our hearts. And so we ask that you would come and move in this place and that you would do that. And in this time, as we open your words, everything that's said and done here today would be uh, to your praise and to your glory, that you would be pleased, well pleased with what's done and said here today. Pray that we would leave here having seen you more clearly through your word and encouraged by this time of, of praise together. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love uh, this time of year. I was thinking about that this week. Just wonderful time as we come close to Christmas. And, and thinking back, a lot of times uh, it, it stirs up all kinds of memories. And, and thinking back to being a kid and how exciting it was for Christmas and the, the anticipation and what goes along with that. And in my house growing up, we would say, I think like six days out, we'd start counting Christmas Eve, 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 Eve whatever that is, and uh, we would start saying that we were so excited about Christmas. And, you know, part of that, and I see it in my own kids, part of that is the anticipation, the excitement, the thinking about what present might I get and what might I get in this. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I still love Christmas and I love that time. And even the last few years of being here at Church of the Apostles and beginning to think about that, I really love the idea, not of presents that we give, but presence and His presence with us. That we get to celebrate that the God of the universe has come to us. And so we get to think on that and we get to talk about that and we gather together and we sing his praises and we sing these wonderful Christmas hymns and these songs that have so much meaning that talk about who God is and what he's done and the way he's come to us. And so we get to do that. We get to gather together and do that in this time. And so what we're going to do today and really the next four times we gather together, including this one, is we're going to look at this idea of the incarnation of God coming to us in the flesh. And when we say that, we say that word a lot in the church, incarnation. That means God coming to us and, and being fully man and fully God, marrying those perfectly together in Jesus. And so thinking about this idea of, of God coming in the flesh and being fully man and fully God and what that means and why that's so important. And so what we're going to do uh, these next three Sundays, and then we'll finish this actually on Christmas Eve. We have a Christmas Eve service. If you're not aware that's at six o'clock on Christmas Eve. We'd love to see you here for that as well. It's always a wonderful time right before Christmas to really focus on what's important. But as we do this the next few weeks, we're just going to say this series is just God with us, right? The idea of Emmanuel, that's what it means, God with us, uh, God coming down in Jesus. And so the way we're going to do this the next few weeks is just look at different parts of this. Because the incarnation is so multifaceted and there are so many huge doctrines of scripture and things that we believe that are so tied to Jesus coming in the flesh, it's important for us to stop and think about those things. And so this week what we're going to look at is this idea of God with us, our brother. And the passage we're going to look at is in Hebrews chapter 2. Chris just read it for us just a minute ago. And so we're going to look at a few verses in Hebrews chapter 2. And then next week we'll look at God with us uh, as he came as humble servant. And then the next week we'll look at God with us, the King. And then the last on, on Christmas Eve we'll look at God with us, the Savior. And so we're going to look at those different aspects and kind of highlight different parts of this as we think on together the incarnation. It helps prepare our hearts 
for the celebration that's Christmas. And so as we jump into Hebrews chapter 2 and what we're going to look at, just give you a quick uh, catch us up as we're going into Hebrews and stepping into chapter 2. Hebrews is a sermon letter. In a lot of ways, it's really a sermon, and it was written to the early church, and it was written to encourage them. They're going through really hard times, and Hebrews is there to, to bolster them and encourage them. And what you see in Hebrews is this, and, and you could really summarize Hebrews this way, that Jesus is better than everything. That's, that's essentially what Hebrews tells us, especially the first two chapters. That's really what it says. And then as you go further, it, it, goes, it, it expands. And what it does is it tells us all the things in the Old Testament the law and Moses and the temple and the high priest and all those things were just shadows of what was to come in fullness in Christ. And so that's really what Hebrews is about. And you get at the beginning of Hebrews and he's, he's telling us that, that God has, has spoke to us in all these different ways and over different times. And then now he's spoken to us in the fullness, the exact imprint of his nature, the very one Jesus and he says, so don't forget that. And he reminds us that. And then he moves into this passage where he, he says that, uh, in verse 11 of Hebrews 2, that he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And that's an incredible idea to think about. Jesus calling us his brothers. God with us, our brother. And so that's what I want us to think about this morning. And so the three questions I want to ask, the outline is there. If that helps you, that's on page 9 of the bulletin if you want to follow along with that. But just the three questions are this. is How is he our brother? How can we even possibly say that? Jesus, our brother. Secondly, why is it like this? And there's a lot that goes into it. And, and really what I should say when I say why is it like this is why is when we think about being uh, brother of Jesus, Jesus, our brother, um, why the incarnation is so essential for that to happen and take place. That's really what we're saying when we say why like this. And then lastly, just how do we apply this? As we think on this in the holidays and we think on this in our daily walk with Christ, uh, some important things for us to cling to and hold on to. So let's start there at the beginning with how is he our brother? How can we even say that? And so look at verses 10 and 11 with me. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And so we, we see this picture here of, of uh, uh, that he calls us brother, and it says there right at the end that it is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And so we get that picture there of him calling us brothers. The word there really means siblings, brothers and sisters, and, and that we can be called brothers. And he tells us really right there how that's the case. And so what I'm about to say, I realize sometimes in our culture today and in our world today, it can be uh, off-putting if you don't understand the fullness of what the Bible teaches in this. The Bible talks about children of God, and it tells us how we become children of God and what that looks like. But I want to stop in just a second before I even get to that, because I, I want to affirm and tell you the Bible clearly tells us that all men and all women in all places and in all cultures are made in God's image. We are made to be God's image bearers and we bear the marks of that. And so all people in a very real way are made in God's image and he is their creator. And so when people hear that, they often say, well, we're all sons and daughters of God. And in, in some senses, that's true. But when the Bible talks about being a son or daughter of God, a son of God, and, and as the Bible talks about here, about being Jesus, being our brother, it means something very specific. I think a good way to think of it is, yes, we are all made in God's image. God put us on this earth and, 
and put us uh, to be his image bearers, to reflect back him, to be all about him essentially is what we mean when we say that. And what we've done, every single one of us, is we've ignored him in the world he created. We say that often here. That's what sin is, ignoring God in the world he created. And in doing so, we've estranged ourselves from our creator, God. We're no longer sons in the way that we were originally intended to be because we have rebelled. We're separated by our sin. You can think of it as we're estranged from our father because of our sin. We've turned our backs on him. We've left him. We've gone away from him. And so what the Bible tells us is when that happens is that we are children of wrath. And that's where you say that and people go, whoa, wait a second. Some people are children of wrath. And what the Bible means by that is in our sin, separated from God, apart from Christ, uh, his holy justice rests on us for our sin because of God's character. And so the picture is this, to be a son of God in Scripture, to be Christ's brother, is that you have to put your faith completely and totally in what Jesus does for you, right? the heart of the gospel. You're only saved but by what Christ does for you. And so in these verses here, when it talks about he's not ashamed to be called, to call them brothers, when it says that about Jesus not being ashamed to be called our brothers, the only way that that can happen, the only way we can say, how in the world is Jesus our brother? It is by clinging by faith alone in what Christ has done for us and no other way. Only then do we become welcomed back in by what Christ has done for us, made right with God because of what Jesus does for us, and then we're called sons of God. And that's the picture that you even see here, right? That he should make uh, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And what he's talking about is this, this picture, the founder of our salvation, as it says, is, is something that he does for us to bring us back. Right? That word even there that says should make the founder of their salvation perfect through their suffering. That word founder means a champion or a captain. And that would have meant something to the first century Christians that sometimes we miss. And what that means is when there was a battle, oftentimes between two warring uh, countries, what they would do is they would pick their best fighter to be their champion or their captain, and they would go out to fight on behalf of their army. And the other would do, and they would agree that whoever won, they won the victory. And so what it's telling us is to be brothers of Christ, to be welcomed in is through our captain or our champion, Jesus, by what he does for us. Our salvation is made perfect through his suffering on the cross. And so the picture that is there is to be a brother of Christ, to be God's child, is you have to be clinging to faith through what Jesus does for you. You can't do it yourself. And so that's the first part that I just want us to consider, that to be ever called brother, it has to be through what Jesus does, how he restores us to God. Now, secondly, the thing I want us to think about, really spend our time on this morning, is why the incarnation is necessary for that to be the case. Why like this? Right? Why like this? Why does the incarnation, why does Jesus have to come into the earth as a baby and live this life and do all these things so that we can be called his brother? What's the connection there? As we're saying, God with us, our brother. And so there's a couple things I want you to look at here. Look at the beginning of verse 10. It says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. And it tells us it's fitting 
that Jesus had to come in this way for this to happen. Right? And, and I just thought about that a lot this week, this idea of it's fitting. And you go and you look, and that word is only used a couple times, three times actually in the New Testament, that it's fitting. I want you to think about even what that means. Right? It's fitting uh, that when we gather together, we read God's word. We'd say that. We'd say it's, it's fitting that as we gather together, we offer praises to God. In fact, uh, in Psalms, it tells us that uh, praise befits us. It's fitting. And, and the idea when we talk about it's fitting is that it's appropriate, that it's right, that it's uh, correct. And so what the author's telling us is, is that it's fitting that Jesus had to come in this way and suffer and die to be able to restore us back to God. He had to come into earth, into the incarnation in the flesh, for this to be able to take place and happen. It's appropriate and right. And so as I started thinking about that, that, that word is only used a couple times in the New Testament. Only three, two in Hebrews, and then one other time in Matthew chapter 3. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who says it. And if you know what happens in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes under the scene. John the Baptist is in the wilderness baptizing people, and Jesus comes up. And he comes to John the Baptist, and he asks him about baptizing him. And John the Baptist says, whoa, wait a second. I'm not real comfortable with that. What are you talking about? You should be baptizing me. This does not work. Right? John kind of protests. He says, no, no, no. You should be baptizing me. And so Jesus answered him, and he says to him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And so you look at that story and you go, well, what's going on? If you know anything about John's baptism, John the Baptist comes and he's baptizing people. It was a baptism of repentance. People that were thinking they were saved by their heritage, thinking they were saved because of their culture and that they had grown up Jewish and that's what saved them. And so he come and say, repent of that. Right? It's a heart issue. It's not just what you have on the outside. It'd be the same thing today with thinking that you're saved because you grew up going to church. Right? Well, my parents were Christians and I went with them, so I'm good. Right? John's baptism would be very similar to saying, no, repent and get your heart right with God. And so you see Jesus coming and the question becomes, why would Jesus be baptized? He didn't have anything he needed to repent of. Perfect in every way. But he says it's fitting for, for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I think the picture that is there is the same thing the author's telling us in Hebrews, that Jesus comes and he's being identified with humanity, being fully human. Right? Look at verse 14, what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Or in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And I think that's what was happening there. Why Jesus says it's fitting, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. He's coming and he's partaking. He's, he's siding with showing his humanity. That he's fully God, but he's fully human. And it has to be this way. It's fitting. Right? It's appropriate and right for him to do so. And so the next question becomes, well, why is that the case? Why is that fitting? Why does he have to become in the flesh? Why can't God decree from up on high that I just forgive everybody and that's fine and I don't really need to come down there? Why does he have to come in that way? And so look at what it says in verses 14 and 15 and we're going to kind of think through these couple verses together. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things 
that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so it tells us he came and partook of all these things, and then it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. So he comes to destroy, but it says he has to come in and partake of all these things and be like us and be fully human for that to happen. And so I want us to think about why. I want us to think about the power that it tells us that the devil has. What power does the devil have? It says he has the power of death. But I want you to think about what we know about Satan, what we know about the devil in the Bible. One of the clearest personifications of him is in uh, the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job, it's a lot about suffering and, and what's going on kind of behind the scenes when we don't know what's happening in suffering. And the devil shows up and he accuses Job before God. And he says, Job is a righteous man and he does all these things, but the only reason, this is Satan speaking to God, he says the only reason he does that is because you've given him so much. He doesn't really love you. And so what we see Satan doing, we see the devil doing is accusing He shows up and he's seeking to destroy and he's seeking to uh, do away with all that God cares about. And so he comes uh, accusing Job. And so God says, I don't think that's the case. And he says, okay, you can take Job's stuff from him, but leave him alone. And so it unfolds in the story that Job goes through all kinds of heartaches and hardships, but God uses all that. You see that behind the story that God is at work and all those things. But what I want you to point you to, without getting too far off into Job, coming back to what we're talking about here, is that Job go, or, or Satan goes and he accuses Job, but what we see is he's only, his power is only as far as what God allows to happen. God is still sovereign. God allows Job to go and to do these things. I'm sorry, Satan to go and do these things to Job. God himself never does evil. He never wills evil, but he allows these things to happen. He's still sovereign over it. And so you go, well, what power does Satan have? Right? He's only operating while God is still sovereign. He couldn't go and go outside of God on this where God is not in control. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Lord is the Lord of the storms. As Jeremiah, my brother, was here and he talked about how God allows those storms to happen. He's still sovereign. So what power does he have? I want you to think about this picture for just a second. We'll come back to that. But think about uh, what is the power of death. Because it says here that he has the power, uh, the power of death that is the devil. And I want you to think about why we die, why death entered. The Bible tells us that uh, the, the wages of sin is death. Or you read in, in Romans 5 that one man sinned and so sin spread to all men, so all men die. Right? It's because of our sin, our rebellion against God. And I want you just to think about that for a second. God made all things. He holds all things together. He is the giver of life. When we turn from Him and we turn our back on the power that gives us life, the one that sustains all things, we're disconnecting ourselves from the way we were made to be. And what happens, that's what sin is. It leads to disintegration. It leads to falling apart and eventually to death. And that's the picture of how what happens, we get cut off. And so I want you just to think about that for a second. The Bible tells us that if we honor God and we trust Him, we follow Him, uh, we, we defer to Him, we look to Him, we glorify Him, that's what we were made for, to reflect back who He is, blessings will come. Right? Things will go well because that's the way God made the earth. 
You're aligning yourself with the way things will go. But if we rebel and we turn from it, there's curses all throughout the Bible, blessings and curses. And what that means is there's consequences to turning uh, away from all that's good. All good comes from God, and if we turn away from Him, then there's going to be issues. Right? You see those consequences? That's built in because of God's character and who He is, and He is the sustainer of all life and the sustainer of all that is good. And so follow this for just a second. And so when you think about that, God Himself uh, when we turn away from him, that's why we talked about just a minute ago, we become children of wrath. We've now ignored God and because he is perfect justice, because his character is so perfect in every way, payment has to be made for our sin. Right? Like, uh, i give you an example of, this is a very imperfect example, but I, I go to get donuts with my kids on Saturday morning. I take the boys. They get up and first thing, it's like, when are we going to get donuts? Can we get donuts? And some days they wake up and they're just fighting Right? And I go, if you stop fighting, I'll take you to get donuts. And so they pull it together. Uh, this happened a few weeks ago. We, we get in the car, and we're on our way to get donuts, and one punches the other, and they're screaming. And I actually had to stop in the neighborhood, and I turn around and look at both of them. I go, if that happens again, if you punch your brother, and if you scream, one screams a lot and one punches a lot, I'll let you figure out which is which. But they do that, and I say to them, stop, or, or we're not going to get donuts. And so we pull back out two minutes later. Bam! Screaming. I go, so I have a choice, right? I just said, if you do this again, we're not going to get donuts. And it was so frustrating because I wanted to get donuts too. (laughs) And you're like, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I laid that down as the absolute. If this happens, we're going back. But I had to because I had just told them and to keep my word and to be consistent with them and to tell them that there are consequences to what you did. I did. And so we had to turn around and we go home and we walked in and Joanna went, what happened? We were gone like five minutes. I said, Ugh, you don't want to know. Just, you know, we're not getting donuts. And, but the picture that I'm getting at is, is in, in our, uh, you know, to have consequences for sin. If I was going to keep my word and I was going to be consistent, I had to turn around. God is perfect justice and he is perfect holiness in every way. And so when we rebel against him and we sin, there are consequences God doesn't change. He is perfect in all his ways. That's why the Bible talks about being children of wrath when we are separated from God because his justice is so perfect in every way. And so all that to say, I'm coming back to how does Satan have the power of death? What power does Satan have? He has the power to accuse. He knows who God is. Satan is a great theologian. He knows who he's dealing with when he deals with God. And so when he comes before God and he accuses you of sin, he knows what God's justice is like. And so the only power that Satan has over your immortal soul is to come and say, oh, he's a sinner and he deserves hell forever. Knowing who God is. And so when you think about this picture of why does Jesus have to come in the flesh to destroy the power of sin and death and what Satan has, the power he has. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. He therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right? The only power Satan has is this accusation of our sin. 
that he can point to where sinners and knowing who God is and how God is perfect in all his judgments. Right? And so Jesus comes into this life and he walks among us and he becomes fully human. He enters in and the covenant that God made with man has never been kept by any man ever except Jesus. Jesus comes and he walks and he walks perfectly and he keeps all the commandments of God. He loves God and he loves people and he keeps them all perfectly and rightly. He does it. He, he takes on flesh so that he can be counted with us as our representative, our champion, our founder. And that's why he has to be fully human so that he can do it perfectly. And he walks through this life and he does it perfectly all the way. And then look at what it says in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus becomes propitiation for our sin. I'm breaking like every rule of like new preachers today. You don't ever say propitiation. I've been told that a lot. You don't say that because people go, oh, their eyes glaze over and they go, propitiation. It's a big Bible word and it's really fancy and we shouldn't talk that way. Well, the Bible says it. It says propitiation. What that means, propitious means favorable. And, and what it means is that Jesus came into this life and he lived it perfectly and he did everything and he kept all the covenants that God had with man to a T. And he says, now I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to take it on me and I'm going to let God unload his wrath, his righteous anger for your sin on Jesus. And the reason he had to come as a man and the reason he has to be fully God is he is the only one that could do that. He's the only one that could bear God's wrath. He's the only one who could walk it out perfectly. And in doing so, he then gives us his righteousness. He says, I give it to you as a gift. Through faith, I give this to you as a gift. And now you take and you put on my righteousness and now you are, I have made God propitious toward you. Propitiation. He is now favorable towards you because there's no more sin. I've taken it. He's emptied God's wrath on our behalf. And so I want you to think about how that relates back to what he just said about Satan. Right? Satan's only power is to accuse you. Look at JP, hopeless sinner, he deserves hell. And God looks down and he goes, he's put his faith in Jesus and I have clothed him in my righteousness. You have no claim here. Nothing. The power of Satan is done away with. The power of death, Jesus blows a hole in the back of death and you get to walk through by what he's done for you. What a picture. So often we think about Christmas and its gifts and going shopping. And the greatest gift that was ever given is that Jesus comes in the flesh to undo what we've done and then give us that we get to now be with the Father. We get to be called children. We get to be called his brother. Think about that. What a picture that is there. And so it's this beautiful picture of what he comes to do. And so when Satan accuses you, no, God says, no, no, I only see Jesus. I only see 
the brother. I only see my child that is perfect and spotless because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I want you to think about what that means for us. Not just thinking about it in the holiday season, although it's wonderful to think about it now, but we should be thinking about it daily. I want you to think about what he says. Look at verse 12 there. (laughs) I'm always blown away by this verse. So that is why he was not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, so this is Jesus talking. This is a quote from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Everyone knew early church Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. It's fulfilled by Jesus. So this is Jesus talking. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Think about what Jesus is saying. I'm going to take you, my brothers, and we're going to sing God's praise. We are going to, I'm going to tell of my brother. I'm going to say, this is my brother. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe, Jesus putting his arm around you and going, this is my brother. I want to bring you into my family and we're going to worship the Father together. What a picture that he calls us his brother. And it's all because of what he's done for us. And so he comes and he calls us his brother. And so I want you just to think about this as we think about the holidays and what this means. You know, oftentimes the holidays can be either really great or really hard. Or a lot of times both. (laughs) And depending on maybe your family, maybe it's a wonderful time because you get together together with your family and you've been blessed with a wonderful family where that's the case and it's a great time. Or maybe you gather with your family and it's a really hard time. Or maybe you don't really have much family right now. But I want to point you to this and what this passage tells us is that you do have a family and that Jesus, when you put your faith in him, he says, you are my brother. And you get to come into this family. And God is your father. And no matter what's going on anywhere else, I've got you in that. That your father, no matter what mistakes, no matter what problems, no matter how you've fallen, how you've messed up, where they are, he says, you're my brother. And I give you my righteousness and you put your faith in me and you are welcome in to my family. And it's such a beautiful picture that he says that to us, that he's our brother. But then look at verses 17 and 18, and we'll end with this. But it's a wonderful picture that comes out of the incarnation of of God coming to us. And so 17 and 18, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make the propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted And so this is where Christianity radically veers from all other religions in the world. We have a God that came to us. And he's not far off. And he's not sitting up in the heavens just making declarations and never being involved. He came into this life and walked through and he knows everything that you deal with. He's been tempted in all the same ways. He's walked through it. You think about Jesus' life, it's incredible to think about that the God of the universe allowed himself to become a child. And he had to learn to walk. Right? He had to learn to feed himself. He had to grow up with brothers and sisters and have those dynamics. He grew up losing his earthly father at a young age and then had to help support a single mother. He had to work a job. 
He had to deal with frustrating clients. Right? He went through all these things and he walked these out and he knows exactly what you're dealing with. We don't worship a far off God that doesn't know what's happening with us. Right? He was tempted in all the same ways and he suffered. Right, Verse 10, it even tells us the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering, that he suffered and he knows what it's like. He knows whatever you're going through right now. He knows it. He knows it intimately because he walked into this and came into this world. Now, there's one part that always uh, used to confuse me as thinking about it. He suffered and he was tempted in all these ways. But so much of my suffering and my frustrations and my hardship comes from my own sin. Right? I make mistakes and I do stupid things and I lose my temper and I do this. And then you just, oh, I can't believe I did. You know, all the things that come with that. And you go, well, he suffered and he knows and he knows all that stuff. But how is that the case? Jesus was perfect. But he does know all that. And the reason that he knows all that is even though he was perfect, he, he, he purchased our salvation through his suffering. And so when he went to the cross, the perfect sacrifice in all ways, the Bible tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. And so my mistakes and my guilt and my shame and the things that come to me from my rebellion and all those things Jesus knew because he took it on himself. He took my sin and my mistakes and all those things and then he paid for it. And so he knows all of it. He knows all your suffering and all your shame and all those things and he's taken all of it and he says, I've paid for it. I've destroyed the power of sin and death and now you are mine. You're my brother. You're God's child because of what Jesus has done for you. And he purchased it by coming to us and what he did. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. We marvel at the incarnation and what that means for us. That you love us so much that you didn't leave us as we are, but you came to us, you entered this life, you did those things for us and on our behalf. And then you give it to us, the greatest gift there ever is. I pray that this holiday season, as we come up to Christmas, with all that circles around, all that is so hectic and hard uh, that comes with it, that you would just uh, focus us on what you've done for us. That you would focus us on, a, on the greatest gift there's ever been and what you've done for us in Jesus. That we would marvel at that. We thank you for what you do for us. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you are going to do. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, enter into our time where we worship through our giving.